This episode is brought to you by Progressive, where customers who save by switching their home and car save nearly $800 on average. Quote at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $793 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2021 and May 2022. Potential savings will vary. Looking to get out of the ads and back to the story? Fable and Folly Plus is a new way to support the creators you love. The podcast you're listening to right now and more than 60 others can be heard ad-free for as little as $4 a month by visiting fableandfolly.com slash plus. And now, the Call of Cthulhu Mystery Program is offering bonus content to Fable and Folly Plus supporters, including character creation and how-to-play episodes, plus cast and crew outtakes, all still entirely ad-free. Fable and Folly Plus. Sign up today at fableandfolly.com slash plus. Omniverse. The Call of Cthulhu Mystery Program is for mature audiences only. This episode contains use of colonialist terminology for indigenous peoples and discussion of mental health crises and suicide. Please listen at your own discretion. If you find our Stygian story simply scintillating, unlock further secrets at patreon.com slash omniverse media and cthulhumystery.com slash support. tell you what. I've enjoyed myself amidst the holiday wassailing, gorging, and gifting of the holidays, but my diet has been far too deficient in the robust flavors of jazz. Man cannot live on jingle bells alone. Christmas has come and gone, Hanukkah has waved so long, and the new year looms large. But December isn't done, friends. There's one Friday left, and that's today. So that can only mean that there's time to open one last present this year's final entry into the Call of Cthulhu Mystery Program's arcane advent of Lovecraftian cinema, and it, my dears, is a doozy. In this episode, you'll hear showrunner Cat Blackard, keeper of arcane lord Luke Schramm, illustrator Jared Pope, and Omniverse creative Doug Banks band together to face down John Carpenter's In the Mouth of Madness. It's a film that adapts no one Lovecraftian story, but many, holding a fractured lens to them, and reflecting a horrifying visage upon our own world, provoking its viewers, and perhaps our listenership tonight, to question their own reality. As always, if you haven't seen this film before listening, you may want to, but if you haven't the time, our hosts will indeed escort you with their discussion into this unhinged journey. All I'll caution is that if you're listening while driving, don't be surprised if the black road and the night should blend together. And do watch yourself while voyaging through the liminal spaces of the open highway because you never know who or what you'll run into. Person, place, or your own grim thoughts. Stay tuned after this episode and I'll rejoin with you, catch you where you land, and speculate on what comes next. But now, you're leaving Radio Land and losing yourself in the mouth of madness.
Do you hear that? In the cruel blackness of night, an unknowable evil from beyond time cries out. What dark deeds unfold on the streets of Arkham? And which unwitting souls, innocent or impure, will succumb to the maddening call? The call of Cthulhu. Welcome to Cthulhu Cthomentary. Hi, I'm Kat. Hi, I'm Luke. Hey, I'm Doug. Hello, I'm Jared. And today we are going to be talking about John Carpenter's Lovecraftian masterwork, In the Mouth of Madness, from 1994. Now, Luke and I have both seen this film before. I'd be hard-pressed to say what my favorite John Carpenter movie is, but I could very quickly tell you what the most influential John Carpenter movie is for me, and that is this movie. This is the epicenter of really a a huge part of my interest in Lovecraft. Like I discovered this film and Lovecraft's work at the same time Mm. when I was like in either late middle school or early high school and things spiraled out from there. So I feel like this film's only, at least for me, improved with age and time and repeat viewings. But you two have both seen it, Jared and Doug, for the first time. Yes. (laughs) So uh, do you read Sutter Kane? (laughs) I, I do not, unfortunately. I don't read horror I, trash. I can see. <laughs> he sees you. When you, what you're saying is like, oh, this is so influential on me. Like, oh, I can, I can totally see that, and I can, t- and I completely see why. I think a hurdle for me going in is that I have seen so many other Lovecraftian inspired air quotes Lovecraftian inspired movies. Seeing this was like, I, I kind of felt I knew more what to expect going in. Whereas if I didn't know anything about Lovecraft, it would have blown my fucking mind like way more. So for me, I'm just like, it felt like a more familiar tune, like like a, someone who knows what they're doing, making a Lovecraftian movie. But I felt like I could understand the beats more, like I could anticipate it, not to a negative degree, mm-hmm. but it was like, I, I'm jealous of your younger experience of seeing it without really understanding Lovecraft or being exp- exposed to that and having that. Because I'm just sort of like, oh yeah, this this is a Lovecraft movie. It, I think it was it, also important that I had not seen a David Lynch film aside from Dune up to this point. Right, right, right. So like, if this if this had happened at a at much much like yourself, if this happened at an earlier time in my life, I think it would have been like a much huger impact on on me. Uh, as it stands now, I think it's cool. Certainly seems to understand the Lovecraft thing more than a lot of it. Like there's the Call of Cthulhu silent movie. It was good, you know, and I haven't seen like Dagon and uh, Castle Freak and it was well, I mean, like, I suppose this distinction here, especially in the continuum of the Cthulhu Cthomentary things, is this is the first thing we've done that is in no way an adaptation of anything. Right. Yeah, not directly. Uh, not right. directly. Indirectly, there's a lot going on. But... but that to me is what made it still cool and fresh and interesting is like this is someone doing a Lovecraft story without actually adapting something. Mm-hmm. So swimming in the mythos of it and 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 really getting the spirit of it and without just directly copying it. So I really dug that. And some of the creature design was like, especially towards the end, everything oh, like yeah, that was yeah. all fantastic. And I was just like, save, I, save it for the save it for the end. Yeah. And I get <laughs> and I get that, like, we could only see so many glimpses of it because probably in reality, it's just a guy hobbling in a suit. But they really made it work like really well. Uh, there there was the literal Lovecraftian obscurity happening. <laughs> yeah. Where, yes. To the point where even me as the viewer, I'm like, oh, is that a guy in a suit? Oh, wait, that's like animatronic. But they're cu- they're, they're cutting so well between like 
what is either person in a suit or animatronic or mixture of the two. And then you think you can like I, at one point I'm like, oh, yeah, that guy's like running, hobbling on whatever. But then it cuts to another shot and it's like all part of one large mass. I'm like, you know what? I don't know what I'm seeing. And that's the point. Like, I can't, you can't make sense of it. I was definitely having fun just kind of uh, digesting a lot of just the editing and visuals that they were doing to kind of create this sense of uh, disorientation, uh, not just for the audience, but also for Sam Neill's character um, you know, as, as, as he's progressing through, through the film. Love that scene in the cafe. Yeah. That, yeah. that shot of him approaching with the axe. Yes. Yeah, yeah. And just, just so nonchalant. They're just continuing their conversation. <laughs> so, no care in the world. I guess now is probably a good time to give an overview because we're starting to drift into specific yeah. details. Yes. Specific yes. details. Yes. Essentially, Sam Neill plays a guy who is a freelancer who follows up on insurance claims. If someone is claiming bullshit, he is a sniffer of bullshit and he always gets his person. And he is so good at his job that he loves it when people play, play hard to get and are professionals about it. He gets brought in to work on a claim that has been made by a publishing company because a global best-selling author a la Stephen King, though Stephen King does exist in this universe, this guy outsells him, named Sutter Kane has gone missing. They do not know where the uh, next, they've heavily advertised the next book and they do not know where it is. The editor has read some of it, but it's not done and they don't know what to do and they are filing an insurance claim because they stand to be out a lot of money. So Sam Neill gets roped in to basically figure out where the fuck Sutter Kane is. Um, but in the meantime, there is such a like cultural frenzy happening around Sutter Kane in the, re in the release of the most recent book, The Hobbs and Horror, that people are rioting at bookstores and stuff. There is a suggestion that you only see bits and pieces of that maybe, just maybe, the rumor is that these books actually do make you unhinged. Hmm. Um, Sam, or if you're already unhinged, that's the excuse. Like, right. well, they're already unstable. They, this just they're you know. reading horror books. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> horror books that, like, millions and millions of people read. Right. <laughs> so Sam Neill gets sent out along with Linda Stiles, Sutter Kane's editor, to track him down because Sam Neill eventually figures out that Sutter Kane, who does his own artwork for the books, has left a puzzle map in the artwork, and that points to the fictional town of Hobbs End, which is essentially Castle Rock from Stephen King's books. There are many like nudges in the in the realm of like what Stephen King was and is culturally, but in terms of the actual content of the story, sometimes down to exact quotes, everything else is Lovecraft, mm. and the story is ultimately more Lovecraftian in nature than it is Stephen King. Mm. Although, of course, Stephen King has kind of come around in that direction in his later years anyways, considering mm -hmm. Randall Flagg is Narlathotep. Yes, and <laughs> Narlathotep is the word of the day because that is, like, if this is an adaptation of anything, this movie is an adaptation of at least the concept of Narlathotep speaking to people and sharing madness. This movie has, I feel, aged really well because ultimately what happens, this journey that um, Sam Neill goes on, the more of the books that he reads, the deeper he goes, the more dreamlike his entire life experiences and the more fucked up things start getting until he's losing time, until he himself, like, the movie opens with a Lovecraftian framing device where we see him getting institutionalized. And then he starts telling his story. Yeah. An investigator investigating the missing or weirdness of another investigator. Yes. You know? <laughs> it's very, uh, yeah. In, in terms of like how the film has aged and the messages of the film, like I always, when I was, when I was growing up, I thought that the third act was a little weak. I didn't really get it. But in 2019, after not having seen the movie for many years, I uh, joined up with the Losers Club, the Stephen King podcast. And um, you may have seen this if uh, people have been following like Call of the Mystery Program on social media for a while. Uh, we did a meetup. 
at the Music Box Theater in Chicago, Illinois, to watch In the Mouth of Madness on the big screen, the first time I'd ever seen it in there. And when you're watching that film in a theater, and it ends in the theater with everything that's happened in our world and our lives and everything, this is in 2019, it just landed really, 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 really hard. Insofar as that this is about the proliferation of mass media and how fiction can become truth quite easily. Yeah, if enough people and, believe it. And people can mm-hmm. get incited. And like that, this is the fucking world that we're living in. And yeah. in, the, in, in the scope of this film, it is the end times. And this movie was a, a bomb when it came out. Not a lot of people saw it. And now it is like extremely thematically relevant to where we're living. Which is true of a lot of John Carpenter works, unfortunately. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. The, they, that was peppered all throughout, and that whole time I was just sort of like, "This is like the creepiest part of the whole thing." Where he's just like, you know, you know, species can smell their own extinction. I'm like, this is this is I'm already this is creepy enough. Like we don't even have to see a monster. Like, like <laughs> it's too real. Yeah, and and especially because as that stuff starts really coming in, you start really getting a sense of what is actually like happening and what it feels like. The movie has already started getting edited in a way that makes it more and more dreamlike. Like, John Carpenter is not David Lynch. Like, when you watch the dreamier David Lynch movies, I often ask myself, how is it possible that he has, like, composed something that feels this much viscerally like actually having a dream? Mm. And this movie doesn't really do that. But it, maybe it's a certain kind of dream, the kind of dream that you get stuck in and you wish you weren't inside of and yeah, you just you can't, can't seem to shake it. it. Yeah, like yeah. the narrative keeps bubbling up again and again and again. This is I can't remember what your Lost Highway came out, the David Lynch film. But like this is probably the closest thing that um, in terms of like a narrative that gets squishy and starts kind of warping you, you as the viewer's own perception about what's happening. Yeah. This is the closest John Carpenter's probably ever going to come to that. Uh, it was around the same time. I think a lot of it is like John Carpenter is telling discrete stories like this is, you know, it's not even a a thing that he wrote, not this one. Right. Which is Um, surprising because obviously he and Stephen King have a relationship. He and H.P. Lovecraft's work like they, you know, it all plays off each other. Yeah. But then like David Lynch is more of like a, I don't know. The the script is probably like tertiary importance to him. Yeah. Of like the story that he's telling. He's more about like the shot compositions and characters and things Mm -hmm. like that. And then a movie kind of bubbles up out of that mm-hmm. and and i think that probably lends itself to more of that dreamlike quality whereas this is more of like a discrete exercise by uh john carpenter mm-hmm. yeah especially with the the special effects and everything like you have to know what you want to get when you have this much stuff in play mm-hmm. the writer by the way is michael deluca which is weird Mostly known for just producing. Yeah, a very, very prolific producer. However, in terms of King's Dominion, he did write the screenplay for Lawnmower Man. Huh. Make of that what you will. And then also in terms of the sci-fi horror, he has four credits for screenwriting. Lawnmower Man, Freddy's Dead, The Final Nightmare, In the Mouth of Madness, and Judge Dredd, the 1995 one. Make of that what you will. But if you look at his production credits, holy shit. Like some of the best movies of the past 30 years. Yeah. So... I don't know really anything about Michael DeLuca, aside from, like, I've seen his name flash in the front of a lot of films. He actually did a interview show with Hollywood screenwriters in the vein of Inside the Actors Studio. Oh, that's, that's interesting. Wow. And, and he uh, was very much, at least if the show was to be believed, an advocate of, you know, the writer being, like, key to the to the process. And that's trying to use his sway as a producer to be like, hey, we need to give more credit to, like, writers <laughs> to it because if, if, if they don't if they're not good and the script's not good the movie's not going to work mm-hmm. so it was i I'd, I'd seen several of those when i was uh going to college and like trying to get more into the mindset of 
you know, how, how does a studio system work? Where does a writer fit in with all that? And it was really refreshing to see someone with that kind of authority deferring to writers and kind of fanboying out over the people that he would interview and meet. I feel validated now. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Another than that, yeah, just obviously an impressive pedigree of uh, mm-hmm. films that he's produced as well. This movie has a great cast. Sam Neill is the main character, John Trent. Uh, Julie Carmen plays Linda Stiles, the uh, the editor. And then there's like, it is stocked to the brim with character actors you've seen from other things. Everybody yeah. is somebody. Charlton Heston has a bit part for like seemingly no apparent reason, but sure, he's fine in it. Hayden Christensen, his film debut. <laughs> you see his actual face, not even remotely as much as you see him wearing some regrettable uh, age makeup. Which yeah. looks coincidentally like John Carpenter. <laughs> uh, yeah, Mon- yeah his, his hair pattern. Yeah. His age makeup looks like present day John Carpenter. Yes. It is very strange. <laughs> Doug, there's a Ghostbusters connection here. Uh, well, yeah, I, the dude's mug is plain as day. I just was like, I kept wanting to make like, it's the buzzing that flies to him. <laughs> but, it, but every moment was inappropriate. I was just, I was interested in seeing how the scene progressed and like what was happening. Because every time he showed up, bad things happened. Yeah, yeah. It was, it was, yeah. This is wild. This is the only other major on-screen performance of William von Holmberg, the actor who plays Vigo. Yeah, yeah. So. Yeah, no, it was cool. It was cool to see him and then not be the villain, but still be like creepy guy. But he, yet he's just local, just local, local farmer color. guy. Yes, yeah. local color. Yeah, it was that was cool. <laughs> it's like if the world ever needed to do a deep fake for Vigo for like a future <laughs> Ghostbusters got a movie, more material. Got more material than <laughs> I'm from. Right, it's different sides of his face, you know, not just the straight on, you know. <laughs> but that was that was a fun treat. And then seeing like other, like John Glover being in it, like ever, all these all these character actors popping up throughout the entire thing, it was a kind of kind of a who's who of uh, spooky movie stuff. Luke, when did you see this film for the first time? You know, probably in college. Mm. It was kind of a thing where I hadn't seen it before, but I'd heard of it. Somebody just mentioned it specifically because like, I had actually started running the Call of Cthulhu RPG. And somebody was like, oh, you'd probably like this movie then. And uh, that was when I saw it for the first time. Cool. Seeing it again in, in a review. It holds up pretty strong. And there's just a few scenes in it that are just really like iconic and burned into my memory. Yeah. Mm. Like, like, yeah, like that scene early on with the axe-wielding agent. agent. Yeah. yeah. I just absolutely love that scene. And it, then just that kind of that whole end sequence when he leaves his cell. Yeah. Let's talk about the, the agent scene because it is it is breathtaking. And I think about it all the time. <laughs> it's Sam Neill having a conversation with a colleague. They're at a diner. It's a two shot. They're on either side of the screen. And in the background, they can't really hear what's going on or anything. They're not paying attention. A guy who I can't remember his name, but like a well a well known character actor in a bunch of things with a really wonderful like deranged face is crossing the street holding an axe like towards the camera, yeah, Yeah. panic and everything, and then just like smashes the screen in half with the glass in front of them, and then leans in with you know the the movie has not established what it's about at this point. Yeah, they literally just established that that author is missing. Yeah, Yeah. the way he gets up on that table and just kind of nonchalantly crouches down to ask the well, question. And then it cuts to his face <laughs> and you can see that he's got these contact lenses in which make him appear to have like two merged pupils. Or or, or as though it's almost like a cell splitting. Yeah, 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 yeah. Very much like a cephalopod's eyes. Yeah. <laughs> and then uh, following that, Sam Neill's character goes to the uh, to the publisher and he's like, oh yeah, the agent, you met him. He was the axe-wielding maniac. And at that point, I'm just like, oh shit, this movie's like, <laughs> buckle up. Because <laughs> like, they're going all in. And uh, did uh, Sutter Kane ever tell you that his favorite color is blue? Because yeah. <laughs> uh, that's the color of the eyes. It's the color of a oh, bunch yeah, of different yeah. important things. Yeah. yeah. 
there is some really profound Lovecraftian architecture in here. I'm not talking about non-Euclidean. I'm just talking about like disturbingly symmetrical things. Yeah. Was that church a real place? Yeah, it was a real place. Where is that? It's in Ontario. Cool. There is this. Better burn it to the ground. (laughs) That is evil, evil church. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I really incredible visual that like it, you see it and you're like well that has to be faked but i have no idea how it's done yeah. it's it is not faked at all yeah. and an ominous church in a vacant field yeah it's, it's legitimately real life creepy then like mm-hmm. i don't know what to, to, tell me about the person who who designed it did they kill themselves <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah <laughs> first time i saw that i was like oh that that's a weird map painting to do but uh but they, they just really keep, cool looking yeah, church. They keep, like moving towards it and they oh, go into doors it's like oh my gosh like Oh, you see this Orthodox monk. He went insane after designing this this <laughs> yeah. church. He's somewhere down there buried in the catacombs. <laughs> I guess for anyone who, for some reason, started listening to this, uh, hasn't seen the film, this is like a uh, onion domed Russian. It's like, it's like Byzantine Orthodox, uh, yeah. style yeah. kind yeah. of thing, yeah. like Just Eastern Orthodox. Yeah, yeah. Uh, out, out of place in like New Hampshire. <laughs> <laughs> I love the progression of this and how. It's really well plotted in terms of Sam Neill's character being someone whose job and passion is to sniff out liars and finds it virtually impossible to believe anything impossible that's happening to him. Whereas Stiles, who he's traveling with, she likes being scared. She likes horror stories. And the fact that all of a sudden she's seeing a bunch of things that are not just from Sutter Kane's books, but are in the unpublished book that she can't rationalize at all. Yeah, um, pretty much immediately accepts that something crazy is going on. Yeah, and 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 it, and that's that's the logical thing to do. But for Sam Neill, the logical thing is to figure out how this is a situation with a bunch of paid actors. Yeah. How all of this is some kind of crazy promotional scheme that, that the publisher is putting on. He is fighting his own insanity the whole time by virtue of his not wanting to believe something that is actively insane. And that is, that protects him up to the end when he effectively like commits suicide, embraces oblivion by watching the film version of In the Mouth of Madness. I really felt that the beginning and end for me are like the by far strongest parts of the entire thing. Yeah. And there's a, there's a, there's a, there's a good like 20 minute segment in the middle where we're just kind of going to other weird thing to other weird thing just so that we can say that he's experienced so many ridiculous things that we, the audience, are convinced that something supernatural is going on mm-hmm. and we're no longer on Sam Neill's side. And that was, I felt a little tedious, but didn't ruin the movie. It, it's just that the beginning and the end are so strong that, it, yeah. that it, 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 the, the Stephen King aesthetic pales by comparison to how strong it begins and ends for me. It does meander, and it seemingly meanders on purpose just to establish like the, a, the, a mood. Yeah, the inescapability of it, you know? Yeah, there is some intense repetition. And like and that's where you really start to watch him go mad like when he continues to like he drives the car trying to leave the town and ends up b- yeah. back in front of the mob again, again and again and again until he finally is like, "Okay, fuck it, I'm going to drive through people." <laughs> that doesn't make any sense, but I'm going to do it. But even, you know, even still, he still is trying so hard to consider the possibility that maybe he's insane, but the rest of it isn't true. Right. We should probably talk about the Nyarlathotep aspects of this luke <laughs> yeah uh i actually happen to be wearing the shirt which is funny like that wasn't intentional <laughs> um so yeah i mean like in in i guess kind of like the you know lovecraftian stories like hp lovecraft himself and writers that have come since now Lathotep is kind of the great old one or outer god that really is the one that actually cares about humanity in some way 
and it's not a good way. Like Yog Sothoth is time and space, and that's you, you don't really have a relationship with that. You know, Shabnagroth is is this like primal force of fecundity and and life and death and things like that. And Narlathotep is a servant. Narlathotep serves the uh, uh, the will of the blind idiot god at the center of the universe, and I guess has plenty of uh, time on its hands to uh, regret its station in life and take that out on lesser beings. <laughs> and uh, very much is like kind of in, in the in the vein of like a trickster god, like like a much more malevolent like Loki or, or you know coyote or something. When he shows up, it's often in, in the context of abusing authority mm-hmm. uh, in some kind of way, like the Black Pharaoh, where it's this, you know, dark figure that is just, you know, horrible, worst thing you could imagine a pharaoh to be, a uh, murderous entity. And, you know, or one of my favorite actual, like, written by Lovecraft stories is, is Narlathotep, the short story itself, where it's in modern day, he just shows up. And actually, it has a lot of kind of thematic aspects with this with Sutter Kane himself where Narlathotep shows up and just goes on a speaking tour and people go in and they watch all of these fantastical sights that Narlathotep has to show people and then they leave permanently changed mm. and the world is slowly unraveling because of that and that's uh I think very much kind of the the essence of what this uh movie is and I don't know that it you know directly that that's necessarily what he was going for because you know with it john carpenter didn't write this himself but Mm -hmm. uh, i don't know if the writer kind of came in with that idea or elements of that or if it's just a good kind of uh story to tell but uh there's definitely elements of that there the more i I watch this movie the more i think that the nerlathotep short story comparison has to be a driving force behind this it's kind of like someone read nerlathotep and was already like keyed into stephen king's work and thought well gosh Stephen King loves Lovecraft. Lovecraft, like, like, what about, like, think about the proliferation of knowledge, how this, this, this small-time writer, like, his work has, like, already, like, changed fiction and horror and so forth. Like, it's a snowball effect. And then it gets in the hand of somebody like Stephen King, and it gets further proliferated. And what if that was a psychological agent that could actually undo reality? Like, it, it's easy to be dismissed until all of a sudden everyone is engaging with it and really seeing how mass media proliferates ideas. Mm-hmm. The same way that the, the Hayes Code changed the kinds of stories that we could tell in America in the 1930s, creating the world that all of us grew up in, where Mm -hmm. we had been in this like whitewashed, completely warped idea of what like life and and this country is. Cowboys are good. Indians are bad. (laughs) (laughs) Whoops. The, Cowboys the, are also mostly white people. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the, the the layers of, of how that like that thought control, like how it seems banal, but it is in fact extraordinarily insidious. Like that cannot be overstated. I know it's an idea that has been explored many times in many different ways, but when you actually look at the timeline, when you actually see that the media that was being created before these like yeah. sexist, racist, nationalistic laws were put in place to control what our media could and couldn't do, mm-hmm. it goes from being reality to not reality, not reality, not reality. Mm-hmm. That's what happened to all of us, and we're trying to still like tear that veil. And it's getting worse because now we live in a world where there are people that we live next door to who do not have any semblance of history or really perceive reality. They will believe what the box tells them to believe or the rectangle, as the case may be. And 
they will let their realities be warped. They will not get any further context. They believe what they are told and they do the thing and they react. And, um, you know, I, I'm not even sure in terms of like, even in the scope of just how things have changed since this film came out, like, were there like riots at bookstores over media and stuff like at that point in time? Like, had was any best-selling author actually causing that kind of like chaos that's reminiscent uh, probably, of things we've seen in our lifetime. Probably like, not, but I think like if you're making a horror film, you would look at people waiting in line for a Stephen King novel and say, "Wouldn't it be crazy if it was if H.P. Lovecraft was alive today?" And you know, I think you could see a logical progression of like, sure. "Wouldn't it be great?" You know, the, the, the fervor take it to the extreme. What does that look like? And that's in the mouth of madness. Yeah, I'm thinking of like what product has been released in our lifetime where people have iPhone. Yeah, I was gonna say. <laughs> Mickey D's Sichuan sauce. Yes. Ooh, more timely. And well, turned at, him to a pickle. Funniest yeah. shit I ever saw. <laughs> and, um, but uh, the final Harry Potter books, you know, people yeah. driving by, trolling people, spoiling yeah. endings and stuff, mm -hmm. and having mental breakdowns over it. Like yeah. the handful of people who committed suicide after seeing James Cameron's Avatar. And we live in a world, especially being here in Orlando, where the fanaticism surrounding people's love for the Disney brand, the Disney yeah. company, is very eerie and very strange and has completely eliminated my capacity to like when friends come from out of town and be like i'm gonna go take my kid to the parks i'm like oh, boy <laughs> like i mean like i appreciate the craft of the, the imagineers but i this is some there's it just it got really disturbed it became a church and it got really disturbing well, and it's, it's getting worse it's because it is yeah just pull the veil off and just every Every product is in itself a religion, and so that that angle that uh, Sutter Kane was was talking about is true. Yeah, you know there were plenty of things that they could have been inspired by in in the creation of this film and the script and everything, but good grief, our reality is emulating like worst case scenario predictions of things, and and in that, in that way that also feels very. Lovecraftian in and of itself. Mm -hmm. yeah. we, we were all kind of reaching for examples of like what mass thing, but yeah. um, what about Black Friday? Oh, like, sure. That's yeah. been a thing for a long time. Yeah. And I think every time anyone uh, sees it, like any normal, air quotes, rational person yes. sees Black Friday, they go, this country is insane. Like, this is insanity. That, like, that, we are, that is where you see violence. We're seeing the yeah. end times. Yeah. <laughs> it cannot be overstated that like the power of stories and the power of words and the power of like what we put out in the world stravinsky's right of spring triggered a riot it's true. and that's like fancy folks yeah. totally losing their shit because they were just not prepared for it so lewd <laughs> it's about fornication <laughs> in the springtime <laughs> disgusting <laughs> if plants and animals do it it mustn't be uh, something for humanity to celebrate it's like it's classical music you you, you put that picture in your head <laughs> it's like you're just mad at yourself i have a question do you think that uh john trent is a fictional character in his own reality or do you think he's somebody who like the editor was manipulated like where does reality start and stop i think this is an example of a film character becoming aware that he's a film character yeah like, uh, like, like. At first, you're like, okay, this is the book that he's writing. But by the time you get to the end, you're saying, no, this is. It's quite literally the movie based on the book. So it's almost like he's even an extra step removed from John Trent. Yeah. So that's the the chaotic futility of it all. John is imprisoned in many regards. He gets trapped in the town. 
He gets trapped in the confession booth. He gets trapped in time loops. He gets trapped in so many different ways. And then he realizes like he has always been trapped in the rectangle of our screens. Yeah. And, th- and even if you think about it in the beginning, he's like, I'm not crazy because he knows what he is. And he knows this is a fiction. But much like what the assistant said was, well, if you're sane and everyone else is crazy, you know, now you're the crazy one. Like, mm-hmm. so that it's, it's the... It was very aware of what it was doing and, and, and placed all those things in a row nicely. It, it's also interesting because that's a component of Twin Peaks that wasn't as clearly a component of Twin Peaks until mm. the return happened. Mm. But here's John Carpenter doing a similar thing yeah. um, in a dreamy space yeah. much earlier. Also about mass media and about, you know, the power of it. And yeah, this and Fire Walk With Me would make one heck of a double feature. Like <laughs> people would be miserable. <laughs> They'd, like they would go home. <laughs> well, or they just would cease to exist. Yeah. <laughs> They just shake in their chairs until... Yeah. <laughs> Another like thing that this kind of ties back to and has elements of that Call of Cthulhu fans and a lot of like you know Latter-day Mythos fans will appreciate is there's a lot of similarity and elements of The Repairer of Reputations, which is the first story from The King in Yellow by Chambers. Mm. That's a little more kind of like what you were talking about with like a society gone mad. That whole story, you can't really tell what's happening exactly because it's obviously a very unreliable narrator. But, uh, you know, it's, it's about all of these interactions with this, this play, which within that story, it's a play. And some, you know, in some of the other stories, the King in Yellow is an entity. But in this case, it's, you know, the, the play. And that's actually kind of why it's so famous as like a play at King in Yellow and that, that affects people. And the society that the writer lives in is just this dark, twisted, like, dictatorial America that has suicide booths on the street corners and things like that anti-semitism run rampant and all kinds of uh stuff like that and the uh main character kind of has a tenuous grip on uh what is or is not real within his world because of that you also don't really know what's happening exactly within within his story either because you don't know what is him embellishing to the people that he's kind of like telling his story to or or what is you know him telling the truth as it actually is kind of like the same arc that Trent has in this where he's being interviewed and the whole movie is basically the telling of his interview. Hmm. That's a that's a very interesting comparison that I don't have a framework for because I have not read The King in Yellow in spite of uh in spite of Lot X. <laughs> I mean because you know if I did yeah. then I then then well what happened to Oswald to happen to me and I can't have that happen. <laughs> interesting production notes on the side like this was uh written in the late 80s and uh there were two other directors attached to it initially it was offered to john carpenter but he turned it down there were two directors attached to it before carpenter ended up like cycling background and doing it one was tony randall who's best known for hellraiser 2 hmm. aka one of the most surprising pivots in horror sequels and uh mary lambert in 92 she did pet cemetery 2 interesting horror and stephen king connections i feel like stephen king is so prolific it's hard to avoid any you know if, if you especially if you're writing a story about a horror novel you know a horror, horror novelist rather and at that time like yeah. anything co- between that like mid 80s oh yeah the, into the 90s period that was a uh, unstoppable force yeah <laughs> cast a long shadow yeah i mean heck john carpenter before this did uh, christine which is yep. one yeah. of one of stephen king's movies and i guess like 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 the book was out like and then they started filming right away mm. like that was like a back-to-back thing where he was already pretty well established at that point to where they're like, yeah, we're already going to make a movie out of this. 
I mean, that kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy in in the mouth of madness when they're like, oh yeah, the movie, the movie's coming out like six months after the book is released and the movie poster says directed by John Carpenter. Yeah. Like, yeah. <laughs> it's very, you know. <laughs> yeah. I really like that line at the end where they're talking about it. Like, and, and one of the things is like, well, what about people that don't read? Well, the movie's coming out next week. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and the eerie, eerie, eerie discussions about how like, 10 years from now, humanity is going to be like a, a sad, weird little bedtime story that gets told by the rest of the universe. Um, <laughs> because like anything, anything that's left from this will not survive. Bleak. It's bleak. It's very bleak. <laughs> I, I think the, scary, the, the to me, the creepiest thing about those scenes in the insane asylum is the is the detective who's asking these questions by omitting any response to what Sam Neill is saying about the outside world. You get the sense that this detective already kind of believes him going in that something crazy is happening and that and then so by the time you get to the end of the movie he's just like well that's my story blah 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 and as and as he leaves the john glover's like did he say anything he's like no nothing important and you're like this the delivery of it is very very much just like yeah i wonder wonder what he did after he left whether he, he thought the world was fucked or if, or if just this was one crazy day he had a taste of his service revolver in the parking lot yeah it's like yeah i know that's uh that story checks out you know <laughs> Do you ever let sanity rolls burn for a little while, Luke? Like, you ever had a situation where someone's like failed their role, like that guy failed his role just then, but like he gets out of the building? It's not like a boom, immediate reaction. It's like a slow, painful realization as the quiet places in his head get filled up with things that shouldn't be there, and there's only one way out. How do you feel about slow burn sanity losses like that on a technical level? Well, it's hard to do because you usually want to keep things going. Like, yeah. I guess to get get to GM chat mm-hmm. for a second. Sure. But uh, uh, <laughs> sanity rolls aren't something that can be really super scripted necessarily. Like, I mean, you know when they're likely to come up, but you don't know who's going to fail them. And you can end up with wildly different kinds of characters that you don't necessarily all want to have the same results for. So it's it's kind of a thing where, you know, there's always the, the random rolls option. But for sanity rolls, I tend to prefer to kind of use a combination of tools like like sometimes i'll just use random sometimes i'll ask the player what they think and yeah and if you know if i trust the players generally i'm gonna let them ride with it if they kind of understand the basics of it but uh i think it really depends on who you're playing with and what kind of what kind of game you're running how many games have you run where the literal end of the world happened not just tpk or everyone goes crazy but rather like no they're here and that's the end Mountain, you know, in the Mouth of Madness. So I just finished up a pulp game. I had been running it for like a year, year and a half. They got to the end. The Serpent Sorceress was sort of playing them. Hmm. But they decided, I guess, her plans for uh, the end of the world were the best they were going to get. <laughs> so the world didn't end, but uh, everybody got turned into serpent people. Okay, um, well, sure. Society definitely changed then, you know. Yeah, 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 yeah. Especially if you're dealing with like, you know, 1930s. Uh, hmm. It's interesting to think, yeah, how would Nazi Germany handle it if they suddenly all became serpent people? <laughs> what would Stalin think about that? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> They'd all be really into snake jazz. <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, we kind of ended on the result of that, though. But, uh, you know, and, and they presumably kind of had places uh, uh, along with the serpent sorceress responsible, but... I had another game where uh, they went through the whole game doing good, ups and downs, you know. Sometimes people get killed and brought back to life. All kinds of things like that happen. But eventually in the the big final battle, they had their spell that they needed to contain everything. But somebody blew all their magic points beforehand. The the one who knew how to cast the spell. 
And then they got stomped to death by the Sphinx, which was, you know, up and walking around. And we kind of ended with that. But, you know, presumably it's not the full on end of the world. It's Mm. just the Sphinx goes on like a Godzilla style rampage. Mm. It sounds like the start of the end. Yeah, yeah, exactly. All of Cairo is their litter box. (laughs) In all honesty, now that I think about it, like usually that's the that's the the realm of like one shots. Yeah, yeah. But for the most part, I've only most of the one shots. I can't really think of anywhere it's that's happened. It's mostly just been uh, yeah, like those two campaign examples. Hmm. Surprisingly kind of you. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure the dice have a lot to do with it too. (laughs) No doubt, no doubt. I think if you're a fan of. Call of Cthulhu or Lovecraft in general, uh, specifically, I mean, the mystery program, you're listening to this, you have to be, and you haven't seen The Mouth of Madness, I think you should. I'm sorry we ruined it for you. Yeah, (laughs) it's like, yeah, make it all the way, spoiler alert to get to this late in the the thing, but yeah, you should. I had no real good reason why I delayed seeing it myself for so long, just I guess. So we could share this moment, Doug. Sure. But yeah, no, if you're into it, this is like lockstep. Like this is this is the same stuff. Go for it. Yeah, there's um the first movie I ever made it was a short film in in high school called Shatter Dream that was fueled by let's say yeah three significant things in the mouth of madness, phantasm, and me struggling to process being trans and not realizing that's what was happening. So. I'd say that In the Mouth of Madness is a very specific part of my DNA that is pretty integral to the existence of Mystery Program. And so like you you watching back on that old stuff, it's kind of like you as Sam Neill. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, it's, at some point you realize that the world that you've been living in is a complete fiction and uh, you either choose to like uh, make your own reality and, and become your own god like Sutter Kane did or, uh, you know, or you keep living in the dream. Which is not a good dream. It's a living in the nightmare. Because say. if you stay in the dream, it turns into a nightmare. Yeah, I, I mean, this is this is a very bad analogy, but I'll, you know, I'll, I'll commune with the with the, the writhing things in the darkness and step through into my own power. Yes, <laughs> I'm not going to hurt anybody in the process, but I will open their minds. I will put their face to the manuscript and have them read. I mean, ideally, it would be consensually. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, thank you so much for joining us on this journey through Lovecraftian cinema. And remember. Mm. This is reality! (laughs) (laughs) If you say so. (laughs) With a twist of the dial, I cease to exist. Sure, you turn your dial back to WYS and there I am bringing you jazz and conversation as always. And you might imagine that when you're not listening to me, I am indeed still sitting here, or perhaps at home, or meandering down some snowy avenue, but are you sure? You've been told how radio works, that my voice is traveling through the ether and is being summoned forth by this apparatus just like magic. You may just as well have been told that I'm some sort of benign god speaking to you in sweet music and mellow tones. It just so happens that this device performs the ritual to summon me, so you don't have to eat those peculiar mushrooms to hear the voices. Perhaps there's some radio technicians and hobbyists out there narrowing their eyes at me. You know how this works. Well, so do the druids, my friends. The point of the matter is this. You may suspect that I'm flesh and blood because I tell you the story of my existence. And I suppose I tell myself the story of my existence too. I believe I exist. And belief is a powerful thing. 
A lot of people have done beautiful and horrible things lit by the spark of belief. But just because this little voice in the box goes on believing its existence doesn't mean that it's true. As far as you know, every time you touch that dial, click me on or off, I'm gone. And when I come back, I'm just telling you the story that I persisted in the interim. We may never know. But then, perhaps you'll see me down at the automat eating a chicken salad sandwich and realize that a certain radio personality has just been reading a little too much scientific discourse. Though that hypothetical is, again, a story. Hmm. But if you're here, in this place, at this time, not by accident, but by will, then one thing we know for certain is that you like stories. And perhaps the story of stories. If you enjoyed this arcane advent, there are more stories in store for you at CthulhuMystery.com support. Become an initiate via either Patreon or supporting cast, and the Omniverse team's further adventures through Lovecraftian cinema will be yours. Perhaps you enjoy peering through crevices to see what mysteries await. If so, then you're sure to delight in their discussion of the film Glorious, in which a man has a faded encounter in a turnpike toilet, and existence as he knows it spirals into a dark hole. Allow me to give you a peek, then, into the further secrets our hosts found in this dimly lit stall. I went into this thinking this was going to be the first thing aside from In the Mouth of Madness that wasn't directly inspired by a specific Lovecraft story. But then I read a weird little factoid that says, based on the short story Out of the Eons by American writers H.P. Lovecraft and Hazel Held. And there was a couple things about that statement that I was like, wait, what, really? I'd never heard of Out of the Eons, which surprised me. And then I looked up Hazel Held and unearthed a whole bunch of things regarding Lovecraft that I didn't know. Having looked it up, I'd say that saying that it's based on this story is completely wrong. I would say that there's like a paragraph in there in the story that I can read it off. Please do. This is a can of worms and we're, yeah. we're going to get into this can of worms. <laughs> that story ties back to the very first mystery program in kind of a way. One of the big things that, that shows up in that is Von Junst's Nameless Cult, which I yep. will never, ever forget Brandon pronouncing. But uh, <laughs> it comes up a lot in here. <laughs> we're going to be talking about Glorious, but we're also going to talk about the unexpected relationship between H.P. Lovecraft and a female writer of weird stories in the 1930s. <laughs> if that delights and intrigues, then you'll be equally thrilled to discover what waits in The Haunted Palace the first major motion picture to adapt the work of H.P. Lovecraft and introduce the world to the town of Arkham, that dreaded book the Necronomicon, Cthulhu, yogg sothoth and figures and concepts that are perhaps commonplace now, but rendered in a time long, long before that sinister mythology had taken hold in the collective unconscious. An important piece of history, and a story that oughtn't be lost. Again, that's CthulhuMystery.com support to help make future mystery programs and macabre meanderings from our creepy crew, who need you, just as I need you, to sustain our existence. Now, a new year beckons, and with it the promise of fresh starts and the chance of a better year than the one that came before. I'll see you there, on the other side, and with further stories in tow to surprise and delight. But for now, my reality ends. And will it...
Thanks for listening to the Call of Cthulhu Mystery Program. This series is made possible thanks to the generous support of our producers, Amber Devereaux, Becky Scott Bailey, Bob Hogan, CB, Joe Tank Ricciardelli, Josh King, McDribble Deluxe, Miola MK86, Patrick Webster, Sean Hutchinson, Sean T. Red, and our executive Patreon producers, Big Bad Shadow Man, Marcus Larson, and Jamieson Malone. You can join the team at CthulhuMystery.com slash support. And if you enjoy this podcast broadcast, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Podchaser, or Spotify. The Call of Cthulhu Mystery Program is recorded and produced in Orlando, Florida, and Louisville, Kentucky, on land stolen from their indigenous people, the Timucua and Seminole, and Shawnee, Cherokee, Osage, Seneca Iroquois, Miami, Hopewell, and Adena. Acknowledgement of the first people of these lands and the lasting repercussions of colonization is just the beginning of the restorative work that is necessary. Through awareness, we can prompt allyship, action, and ultimately decolonization. For links to aid indigenous efforts and to learn more about the First Nations of the land where you live, visit CthulhuMystery.com slash landback. Our original score is composed and performed by Ryan McQuinn and Mike McQuinn of Neon Dolphin, home for all your custom music needs and more, NeonDolphinMusic.com. This has been the Call of Cthulhu Mystery Program. Good night. Omniverse. The Fable and Folly Network, where fiction producers flourish. Hi, folks. Let me see if I can sum up Midnight Burger in about 25 seconds. Really, big monster? Zero irony. Pardon me, Gloria. Might my husband and I have a word? The radio is talking to me. So this is how it ends. Eaten by wolves in space. There's a pocket dimension in the deep freeze. This is the stupidest dystopia we've ever been to. What the hell is that? Because you're having a cigarette in 415 million BC. Where are we? Space. Can you narrow that down? The bad part? Ava. Yeah, that didn't work at all. At the nexus of all things, there is a diner. Look for Midnight Burger on your favorite podcasting app or just go to weopenat6.com. Dot com.